Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Judge Business Debate. My name is Michael Kitson and I'm an economist here at Judge Business School in Cambridge. In this series, specialists from the Cambridge Judge Business School and the wider Cambridge community discuss and debate topical issues of business and management. In today's session, we are focusing on alternative finance, those forms of finance that have merged outside of traditional finance and banking. In this podcast, we'll explore what is the alternative finance and what are the implications for business, the economy and public policy. Joining to me today are three guests. I have Stelios Cavadias, the Margaret Thatcher Professor of Enterprise Studies in Innovation and Growth and Director of the Entrepreneurship Centre at the Judge Business School. Secondly, Bart Lambrecht, the Professor of Finance at the Judge Business School and Director of the Cambridge Endowment for Research in Finance. And thirdly, but certainly not finally, Bob Wardrop, co-founder and director of the Cambridge Centre for Alternative Finance. So welcome to my three guests. So finance is the main lubricator of modern capitalism, but the financial sector itself is going through a period of rapid change with the emergence of various forms of new and alternative finance. Finance is now awash with a confusing range of new products and technologies, such as cryptocurrencies, crowdfunding and peer-to-peer lending. So perhaps we can start with perhaps the most obvious question, what is alternative finance? Bob, perhaps you could kick off with us. Thanks, Michael. Well, I think it's as much, it's it's useful in some ways to understand what it is as opposed to, and and what it isn't. Uh, What it isn't, and what some people I think initially think it might be, is, uh, you know, private equity or what people in finance often refer to as, as alternative investments. In fact, Many alternative investments, such as private equity or uh, some people would even call infrastructure an alternative investment, are, are very much part of the incumbent system. There are you know, well-established rules. Um, you know, investors in, are usually regulated that engage in those activities, at least from an investor or an investment manager perspective. We're interested in um, alternative channels uh, and instruments that emerge from outside of the incumbent system. Frankly, because that's where the interesting disruption is coming from. The reasons uh, that these instruments and channels emerge are worth studying. And perhaps most importantly, you know, the incumbent system has to deal with this disruption. How does it absorb it? What does it do with it? Does it, does it kill it? So I think uh, you know, the discussion to me is, and what we study in the center is very, very interesting uh, around what does all this mean for the financial system, the lives of, of people, and how we run our businesses. So, so what are the most important sources of alternative finance? Well, in terms, of, um, in terms of funding sources? In terms of types, because we can see, we can see right. such a range. When we're hearing it, we're hearing, we're talking about cryptocurrencies and peer-to-peer lending and crowdfunding, and just trying to work out what are, yeah. the, what are the main sources? So I think, what, what, are we, what are the main types of alternative finance? Yeah, so I think in, when we talk about channels, specifically, we're talking about um, uh, equity funding channels, uh, peer-to-peer lending, uh, so debt financing of businesses. But there are also non-financial sources, um, which are, are, are related to, say, uh, philanthropic uh, or reward-based, which from, a, from an organizational perspective can be very, very important in terms of crowd, crowdsourcing the testing of new product and new innovation before going to market or, or competing larger financing. And then I think alternative payments uh, and, and crypto assets, or what we call tokenized assets, are extremely important, which is really... Uh, you know, a fundamental change that may, may, may be quite structural in the transparency that it brings to business operations and finance activities. Stelios? Um, I, think, I think I would agree with, with Bob along the lines of the keyword channels, right? I think essentially that's a good definition in my mind in terms of putting forward the fact that there is ways by which 
you know, transactions and, and money is floating between different parties. And, and what exactly that money is used for, in my view at least, coming as an outsider, I would say, right, to this financial um, uh, industry, seems to be the, the finance part of it. Now, interestingly enough, I think what, what becomes very um, critical in this is, is what the absorption component that Bob mentioned already. The story that there is these new channels. These channels, for some reason, have emerged without the consent of the incumbents. That's interesting why this happened, although that's a recurrent phenomenon in, in different industries, right, with respect to innovation. And, and then the, the other interesting component there is that how the absorption is happening now that our friends at the incumbents are seeing new alternative payments that they don't control, or they see the fact that uh, loans might be happening outside of the traditional realm of uh, valuations and, 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 and ways by which they would, they would decide the criteria, right? And, and it seems, at least from the standpoint of somebody like myself who looks at startup firms and firms that try to disrupt the existing sort of uh, industries, it, it seems that the incumbents are have been getting worried for some time now. Um, maybe over the last couple of years, they seem to be less worried in terms of they seem to have found a way by which they're dealing with this alternative finance uh, hype. But, but still, we, we don't know where this new equilibrium is going to uh, rest. So if I can follow up to that, yes. So one important element is the element of uh, technology-enabled disintermediation, which kind of cuts out the middleman and which in some ways could could have posed a threat to, to the traditional incumbent. So let me give you an illustrative example, say peer-to-peer lending, as we might see it uh, currently available to, to, to consumers. So under, under the traditional banking model, you might have had that savers put their money in the bank, deposits, and the bank then is the intermediary that will uh, lend this to, to businesses and households as loans. The bank will essentially make the money from the difference between the lending rate and the borrowing rate. So in other words, if some of these loans go bad, the profits of the bank are going to be cut. And banks that issue very bad loans may actually go out of business and, and default. Yeah? Now, if I compare it with, say, a standard peer-to-peer lending um, model, which you might have uh, accessible to consumers, there you would have a platform that immediately matches the borrowers with the lenders. So in other words, at the platform, they may kind of post a number of loans that are available to to the borrowers. The borrowers can then, sorry, to the lenders. Lenders can study these uh, projects and then decide whether or not they want to buy a part of that particular loan. The platform acts kind of more like a middleman here who charges fees. So they don't take these loans onto their balance sheet. It's really the uh, lender who does. So in other words, if some of these loans go bad and default, it's immediately going to be the lender, the investor, who will kind of suffer. And so in that way, uh, it kind of is, is quite different. So it's, it's very different having investing in peer-to-peer lending than having say, a savings account. That, that, that's painted quite a negative picture of it. Um, but I mean, the counter-argument, and I'll come back to Bob in a minute if I may, but the counter-argument is that this platform makes the market more efficient and reduces down the costs, certainly the costs and, and the profits that will be taken by the bank. So actually, the financial market is more efficient. And some people take risks, but that's, they, 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 they may lose out from that. Yes. And also, of course, when big banks lose, 
um, because of systemic risk. The regulators come in and protect them. So perhaps sure. that, that's, that's so how, I wasn't help, looking... helping to solve the moral hazard problem. Sure. So clearly certain costs can be cut out and that it can also increase competition. So banks obviously may have to compete with uh, new entrants and all of this could potentially increase the returns that um, investors could get on their money. There are clearly, if you go to some of these peer-to-peer lending firms, they can offer you or at, you know, returns in excess of 6%. That does not mean that these 6% returns are, will be achieved, but clearly it's way more than what uh, people could get on a traditional savings account. So in that sense, yes, it can increase efficiency, increase competition, and also increase access to funding by uh, borrowers by speeding up the whole process. Well, one of the things I think I want to follow up on something Bart said, because I think it was a very good point. You know, I think we, we tend to see this as a disintermediating process. And what we often forget, actually, it's reintermediating. It's just a question of, of who then becomes the intermediator. So that's one point I'd like to make. A peer-to-peer lender, this is not a, a, a completely disintermediated activity. You have someone in the middle performing some value-added function that an investor is prepared to pay for. Okay? The second point is the market is bifurcating. Okay? So what Bart described as the peer-to-peer lending model is essentially an asset, an asset manager-like model. I mean, essentially, this model has become sophisticated to the point where, uh, you know, I'm not picking my loans with no value added provided by that platform operator. Those platform operators are investing heavily in technology and algorithms on credit scoring to be able to construct portfolios of my loans for me. It's to the point where most platforms today are simply like any asset manager does when you sign up. What is your risk return tolerance? Here's the expected rate of return for the risk you can tolerate. And they basically fill up your portfolio. Is that really banking? I mean, at the end of the day, the incentives and the more hazard risks you could align are much more like asset management. Really, that platform is becoming a robo-advisor in a self-originated domain of investment products. It happens to be peer-to-peer loans to either consumers or businesses. On the other hand, you have platforms that are moving totally away from taking money from individuals. They're focused on generating institutional investment. They're using what Capital, you know, in basically funding structures that banks use, right? They just don't take deposits. But, you know, they're using securitization markets. They're bundling those. They're selling them in capital markets. And they're using very sophisticated algorithms to actually pick, select their loans. They're taking balance sheet risk. So you've got that as a very bank-like model. And I don't think what people generally understand when they look at this market is this bifurcation that's going on because regulators, frankly, are catching up. No one's regulated today like really being an asset manager, even if, you know, they effectively are acting in that manner. I think, I think the regulation part is becoming an interesting part in the discussion here, right? And, and the fact that the regulators are catching up implies a somewhat typical situation in, in many innovation cycles where there's this new way of doing things, right? And we get into that and we don't really understand exactly how the new way of doing things is going to affect every single constituent in the, in the ecosystem. And at some point, that creates value initially because obviously people rushed there because there was something to be chased. But as we go and we learn more, we will start understanding also the risks that might be happening. I don't know exactly how the risks are going to you know, uh, manifest themselves, but potentially... Um, those risks will call for the bigger boys or the regulators or the bigger companies or the regulators to just step back in and create a new situation, a new equilibrium, as I, as I said before. So, so I, don't think, 
I think something that might be useful to, to clarify, and, and I'm just reading this from discussions with fintechs, right? So take it with a grain of salt, is the fact that... Just, just tell us what, fin, what, yes. what is fintech. Just to, just so to... uh, technology-driven companies that enable those new alternative financial channels. That financial innovation. Exactly. It's financial innovation, yes. It's not product innovation, though, necessarily, right? right. It might be also the, the, the technology that enables certain products to come across. But, the, but I think those fintechs, there was this dream a few years back that the fintechs are going to just topple over the big banks and no HSBCs or whatever banks you could see, right, in, in, in this. And, and I think we're now coming to the conclusion that the new world will have banks and it will have some new players, potentially new alternative channels, tech, big tech companies like the Alibabas of this world offering certain financial services. But also the banks will have some say into this, into this bigger picture. And, and, and that's, that's just an interesting equilibrium that's emerging. I'm unsure where the regulator is standing on that because now those risks are going to start becoming more clear perhaps in terms of the new system and new way of doing business. But- I agree, and I think regulation is going to be important because currently this alternative finance sector is still relatively unregulated. And as always, it only takes a few bad apples to undermine the confidence of the consumers uh, and investors in in this kind of uh, alternative form of finance. So I'll just give one example, but of course these are just exceptions. But in 2015, there was, for instance, a Swedish peer-to-peer lender uh, that uh, went bankrupt once it uh, became uh, apparent that there was uh, malpractice uh, among management. So what, for instance, had happened was that um, uh, loans had been issued without the consent of, uh, of lenders. And more troubling, sometimes there was some loans were not directly linked to specific lenders. And so obviously this whole technology-based uh, infrastructure, while potentially very efficient and, and very smart, it could also reduce potentially the transparency, increase the scope for fraud or even cyber risk and the like. And so regulation is obviously an important component as this market is going to grow bigger uh, because it's not only important for uh, the alternative finance sector, but potentially also if, if that sector were to be affected, it could spill over into the more regular um, so, uh, sector. Bart makes a good point. Look, um, I think the challenge when, when people, the average person looks at this marketplace, right, is you're, you're, you're always going to be able to spot the, the trust buddies, the, you know, the situations where you've had default problems. And Bart's right, that could potentially destabilize the market. The problem is, right, in, in our view, I mean, we, we've done a lot of analysis in, with certain lenders in the UK on uh, the performance of their loans versus uh, performance of bank loans, for example, to SMEs. Now, the platform cohort that we picked looking at all those loans, I would describe as having pretty good operational practices, probably better than the mean of the market. And as a result, they outperform. Okay? So the problem is not the mean performance. I would argue maybe the mean performance is at least as good as banks operationally, a lot of them are former bankers. And actually, they have no legacy IT systems. I mean, there's a lot they can do in innovating. The problem is the distribution around the mean. And what you don't want to be as an investor is have exposure on the third and particularly the fourth quartile in operational risk on these platforms. The bottom end of the bucket is pretty bad, I suspect, in terms of operational performance. It's like investing in venture capital. All the returns are in the top quartile. 
But it doesn't mean the venture capital industry doesn't have value in the economy. Exactly. I think that's an important point I'd make. But, it, but it's the bottom tail that could cause a systemic risk. Correct. Taking place. That's the bottom tail. It's a long tail. Because it's easy, there's low barriers to entry to get into the market. And I think the people on the top quartile are increasingly worried about risks they can't control, which is the, it could be a fraudulent event, it could be an operational breakdown, it could be something in that long tail bottom quarter that's going to affect their business. I think that keeps some of them up at night. Could I, just, just to clarify some issue, it relates particularly to regulation, but it relates to something Bob you are mentioning before. And is, are we talking about really two separate domains here of alternative finance and traditional finance? Or is many of the aspects of alternative finance just becoming new traditional finance? Because that has an impact on regulation. Because we know the banks are highly regulated. Well, they have increased regulation in the financial sector since, since the financial crisis, and it varies across different markets and different countries. We can say whether it's correct or not, but we do know the financial sector is far more regulated than in retail or the tech space, where many of these new alternative finance products or services that are emerging. So it's, that's less of a problem if all of these fintech end up getting merged back in to traditional finance. Yeah, I, I think that we, we need to be careful of one thing. Focusing on the fintechs too much, even the well-established peer-to-peer lenders or blockchain companies or cryptocurrency companies, frankly, it's a bit of a red herring. I mean, it's the Amazons and it's the Alibabas and it's the big tech, right? Now, actually, if you talk to regulators, actually, regulators are not against those players coming into markets like the lending markets. Why? Because it distrib- in their view, it, distrib- it reduces systemic risk. Okay? You've got more players. They've got very good data. This is all about analytics. This is all about credit scoring. They've got platform business models. They've got very powerful platforms. Once you've got payments, you can layer on all kinds of other things at very low marginal cost and high return and network effect value to the users of the platform. Right? So it's, it's those guys, I think, who are going to be the big players. And regulators are migrating away from the current sort of mode of regulation where I'm regulating you as a bank and all that a bank encompasses to something that they will call activity-based regulation. So if you just want to do consumer loans and you don't take deposits, you don't necessarily need to be regulated like a bank. That's where it's going. There are certain jurisdictions. I would say Singapore are very aggressive in this way. Different jurisdictions around the world pushing the activity-based agenda as a regulatory approach hard. And I think that's coming because the blurring between what we call financial and non-financial today in a digital organization is blurring. So I, I would agree that probably most of the alternative finance would fall under the existing regulation. This being said, some of these new products do not necessarily fall under it and, and, and allow for new uh, types of products to be created. Let me give the example of, say, initial coin offerings, which is a bit like an IPO, not quite. But the key, one key difference is that many can you, of those. Can you tell us what an initial coin offering is? Okay, initial coin offering is basically firms that try to raise finance by issuing tokens. So it's a little bit like a, a cryptocurrency, and these tokens can then uh, later be exchanged potentially for some of the products or, 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 or projects that, that the firms are doing. So it gives you some kind of a, a stake in a firm, but it's quite different from a traditional share. Now, one important difference is that most of these firms that issue these ICOs will try to make sh- may try to make sure it is not considered by the SEC, the Security Exchange Commission, or the regulator, as a security, so that it doesn't fall under that regulation. 
And so you, you, you have products that potentially are developed with specific purposes, not to fall under one regulation, but then it's not quite exactly clear how they are being regulated. So I think that what you're seeing from small countries, okay, is they see an arbitrage opportunity here. Okay, so BART, I mean, really what you're describing in the initial coin off, that token is really, it's a set of rights and obligations, contractual rights between the investor and the token and the issuer. You're buying a right to something associated with an application or an activity of a firm. It could be very equity-like, very debt-like, or something completely different, okay? If you're a Switzerland, you're a Bermuda, Malta, um, I could, you know, name six or seven jurisdictions that really feel that they kind of missed industrialization, that they were really on the wrong side of that, it kind of got away from them, really see creating a regulatory environment that um, is more bespoke to accommodating these kinds of activities around the securities issues in the United States as a huge opportunity. If we look at the history of, of Luxembourg, for example, and how they arbitrage European financial services, um, very important uh, in terms of how these, these small players are, are, are coming together and actually collaborating together against some of the larger firms as this new wave comes. I'm wondering, I mean, in what you just described, Bob, I'm wondering to what extent the, um, in, in this issue, especially the ICOs, right? I'm trying to understand a bit about what, what Bart said. To what extent that will bring the, for the lack of a better description, the real collateral of developing and getting the economy off, as opposed to are we really now are we really investing in some kind of a semi-Ponzi story there where, uh, you know, all of a sudden I missed industrialization, there's no real value economic activity going on. So you know what, guys, I'm going to create the regulation so that you can come and you can trade with all this slightly new and slightly unregulated in the rest of the big markets uh, financial means to, um, to drive my local economy. Is that creating a bit more systemic risk? As, I mean, just as a reaction, I as you were talking, right? I think this is an right? interesting debate among us, right? Like, I feel quite strongly there is no tokenization is inevitable because the digitalization of our economy is inevitable. And tokenization is a function of the digital processes of organizations. Like, let's just, you have, you have, I'll give you an example of an ICO that's, I think, quite, well, go ahead. I was, I was just, just going to say, and, and I'm borrowing the argument, I'll have to be honest here from the latest uh, one of the main press magazines that I was reading, having a little bit of a, a, a discussion about this. Um, it seems to me that right now the volatility of all these tokens out there makes it a challenging means to actually assume that it's going to take over and all of a sudden we're not going to be trading in, in British pounds anymore, but we're going to be using some kind of another token. No, to put it bluntly, would I take my mortgage in one of the... Um, um, cryptocurrencies right now or in, in British pound? For the time being, maybe it's going to change in the future, right? But for the time being, the volatility that you see for the average person out there is so high that I, I don't think we will see that. Now, does this mean that the British pound is going to become a token in the future and we're going to have a digital version? That, that's a different avenue. and It could very well happen, right? But it's So I think there's a huge education issue because when we talk about cryptocurrencies, that's a very different issue than talking about tokenization. Okay. So cryptocurrencies are kind of one flavor of tokenization, right? Yes, yes. But yes, I can tokenize true. gold. I mean, this Chicago Mercantile Exchange has an exchange-tradable digital gold and that token. Has, and that, that has a collateral. Now, now you just described something yeah. that basically you're, it's like issue, instead of issuing papers, you issue something digital 
ally paper, which actually reflects on a real collateral, right? Yeah. That's the, that's the idea. True, true. Right. But, but the cryptocurrencies have done that with a new collateral, which is not even existing and regulated at some level, but if, right? But if Starbucks issues tokens mm-hmm. as, a, as an incentive loyalty mechanism, and you can trade in your tokens for a cup of coffee, and six tokens is worth a cup of coffee, then you can certainly cha- exchange your token to somebody who's prepared to pay something for it because six of them buys a cup of coffee at Starbucks. And by the way, Starbucks is introducing tokens. That is, that, that's absolutely fine as long as we are able at some level systemically to deal with the nice little ups and downs that are going to be happening once you get these tokens into the hands of the big boys who want to play Well, that depends right? on whether the price of a copy of, of Starbucks cup of coffee goes up and down. But th- th- these tokens are backed by something, whereas cryptocurrencies are not. No, but I, I think... Uh, so that, I mean, that's you, you, the, the collateral you, you, argument. Yeah, your collateral argument. You, you didn't say there's a difference. I mean, and, and um, we, we often merge the two together, and there's a, there's a difference between these initial coin offerings, as I understand it, and certainly... So what's the Zimbabwean dollar back? Well, it's not, not much at the moment. I mean, a lot of people yeah, yeah. would rather hold Bitcoin than Zimbabwean yeah. dollars. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, traditional currencies were backed by gold and silver. And the uh, legitimized use of violence by the issuer. Uh, but, but, now, but now they're backed by the issuer. They're backed by nation states. Now, some nation states are more reliable than others. Because they, can, of, they have the right to... Yeah, yeah. They have powerful armies. But, but what, are, what are cryptocurrencies backed so, by? Well, say, for instance, with the ICOs, the initial coin offerings, yeah. the tokens, they would be driven primarily by the credibility and the fortunes of that particular company. Exactly. And exactly. so what you've got is something that potentially is self-enforcing on yeah, both yeah, ways. Yeah. So a company that issued these coins and its product is doing really well, it kind of is successful, the coins obviously will become much more valuable. That will reinforce people's use of the tokens and, every, and it will become an eco kind of environment where everyone is kind of trading in these tokens for that, within that company. But on the other hand, if things start really going badly, then what you've got is that the same forces will then go against you, right? Because people are also then tied in through these tokens with a company. And the moment a company starts doing poorly, these tokens become worthless. People may try to then get out. And, and so the whole... Well, yes and no. It, I mean, so it, it increases potentially volatility again, right? Could, but, but if I buy equity in a startup, I mean, 9 out of 10, I'll never see my money. So that's not so odd. There's been 1,600 cryptocurrencies issued over the past three or four years. And I would say eh, maybe 20 of them have some exchange value of some kind. I mean, 90% of them have died and trended down to zero. There's some, some great graph work on that. I think the token is interesting. We talked about, you know, it's really a, site, a set of rights and obligations, contractual. That actually, you, it can be structured. If the company dies that launches a product, for example, the product may live. And my rights to collect revenues or royalties or whatever my rights are don't die. So those rights can be, the life of the company can be separated from the life of the token. That's a very important concept. And so I think there's a huge lack so of understanding. Are you saying legally if the company were to go bankrupt that these tokens still have value? Yes, what? Because the, because the issuing, whoever is the issuer, right, is issuing a token that has a set of rights and obligations, depending on the relationship of that company to that application or activity to which I have a claim, right? As long as that activity continues, which it can in a digital world, I would encourage you to look at something like Filecoin, which is an Airbnb of file storage, where basically a token buys access to store your files on whoever is making their storage on their laptop available around the world, okay? Now, why would anybody want to do that? Well, I can go to the Amazon Cloud, but that's like staying in the Ritz-Carlton, 
Maybe I don't want to stay in the Ritz-Carlton. Maybe I want to stay in a one-room B&B. Why? Maybe because I want my files to not be exposed to security services. Maybe because I'm just cheap. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But is the excess file storage capacity in the world worth anything? If it is, the collective tokens that give access to that have some value. And if the company that created the network dies, well, the network lives. That's what I mean. I think there's a lot to learn here about why tokenization is fundamentally embedded as a concept in the, in the, in the digital evolution of our economy. I was, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I mean, this is, this is interesting. One, one thing that you just mentioned, which actually I think we should put on the table for the sake of, of the listeners, is the fact that if there's something that I think alternative finance methods have done is they've opened up the existing products at some level to a far wider audience, right? So let's 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 go into that side, which just you just mentioned this with tokens that I don't want to stay under Rich Carlton, but now there's cheaper, easier ways for the untokenized before. If or you the, have digital infrastructure, exactly. if you but but digital infrastructure is becoming more yeah. and more predominant, right? That's that, that's not the question. I'm still I'm still struggling with the idea of the issuer going off business, but then the product staying on in a digital world because in every system somebody has to guarantee unless it's decentralized and that's the whole idea of blockchain the governance mechanisms are built into the protocol level of the coal of the of the code in the blockchain network that that's the key to blockchain is you don't need digital business if we take what i would call today a digital core company those that have emerged since the internet right they develop platform business models they capture network effects highly centralized like amazon the big shift that's occurring that blockchain enables is to decentralize those network effects. You don't need an Amazon to run the whole thing. That's the beauty. You just don't. But you don't create efficiencies either in the system. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure... This whether... is a huge debate, right? Yeah, and I think, exactly. I think if you well, were to well, read our report of three weeks about conceptualizing distributed ledger technologies, it addresses these issues in I'm sure, sure, sure many listeners will, actually. But, <laughs> but, 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 <laughs> um, they can download it from, from, from the website. Um, I'm conscious of the time. I just want to ask one final... Again, it's a big issue question, which reflects some of this debate we've just been having. Is really, what, what do you think the overall impact of alternative finance will be for the wider economy or wider society? I mean, is this going to have beneficial effects by making markets more efficient um, and in reducing costs and create more competition? Or will there be potential harmful effects in terms of widening inequality if you have access to these markets? Or is this the source of the next financial crisis? Because we've talked about regulation before. I always tend to think regulators are always regulating to stop the past financial crisis happening again. We never quite know where the next one will appear. So I just want to get you a sort of broad view about the costs and benefits of alternative finance for the wider economy. Bart. Okay, well, undoubtedly, I think these new forms of alternative finance create uh, competition. And that in itself, I think, is, is usually a good thing. Usually, uh, not always. Yeah, usually. Yeah, okay. but So um, it, it also may lead to more efficiency. We've discussed this already, cutting costs, increased speed. Um, and so on the whole, I think it is a good thing, yeah? Um, and it will benefit uh, also uh, consumers. But this being said, uh, we, we have highlighted uh, a number of potential issues. Every coin has its two sides, right? And increase in efficiency and so on may at the same time also come with poten- potential risk. And particularly we've highlighted things like fraud, 
the fact that we don't quite know yet how it's going to affect volatility in, in the market, particularly if we were to have a crisis. It's not quite known and tested what the response of cryptocurrencies and alternative finance is going to be in a, another financial crisis and how resilient this system is going to be. Um, but that's just uh, the way things are. Every, every coin has its two sides and uh, you can't disentangle the two. So I think the key thing will be for the regulator to try to make sure that fraud and, and potential other harmful effects to the uh, regulator can be contained. And so that, that's an important element. Stelios. I think, I think if we start by the idea that this is the outcome of innovation and by the fact that usually innovation taking a slightly different view, right? Usually innovation is associated with bettering things, right? Although innovation can be bad. Yes, yes. Particularly for the financial markets, yeah. We have seen that. We had a crisis based on the innovation that happened sometime in the 90s. But but I think still we always end up in a new equilibrium which is slightly different and usually better than what we started with, despite the fact that we might go through the valley of death or whatever this is from a, from an innovation standpoint. So given that, I think eventually we're going to be looking at, at changes. I mean, the, what Bob described as the tokenization or digitalization, I think that's, that's broader. It goes beyond only the financial channels, right? In every aspect of the business, you see a certain sense of um, disintermediation or new intermediation, as you said, re-intermediation based on, on the technologies. And, and the fundamental thing behind this is information, right? Is the fact that now all of a sudden we can manipulate information in better ways because we can capture it. We have the technologies, we have the ways to actually uh, utilize innovation and uh, information and take away the inefficiencies in the previous system. So, so long story short, I think, I think we, will see, we will see things being better in the, in the longer run. Should we envision that there are going to be some risks in between? Yeah, most likely. With every innovation, we have this cycle, right? Yeah, I think it's around the unknown unknowns. And I think that if I hear, if I talk to central bankers, and what, what, what in the back of their mind are they kind of, is really making them nervous about all this? And I would say it's, it's, they don't want another 2008. They see the whole sort of structured products phenomenon, the black boxes, and people really didn't understand what the, what the mechanisms were within those that was producing systemic risk and the interrelationships of counterparties in the market, mm-hmm. they're, they're concerned even something as simple as, as, as allowing the, 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 the emerging innovative sort of, let's call them alternative finance players, to use, to use cloud platforms. You've got a very small number of cloud-based platforms. Does that introduce a new form of systemic risk in the financial system? They worry about this kind of stuff. Artificial intelligence. Are we able to get transparency on decision-making and outputs? What's the impact on privacy? What's the input of tokenization and the commoditization of work from a social perspective? Am I just an input with token value in terms of whatever skills I have plugging into production systems? I think there's a huge number of really big questions that this whole transition to digital, not just in finance, I think finance highlights it. I think Stelius has made the point, yeah, it's finance, but this is part of a bigger thing going on. I think is the right way to look at this phenomenon. Great. Thank you very much indeed. But we, we have run out of time, but I'd like to thank my guests, Bob Wardrop, Bart Lambrecht, and Stelios Cavadias for contributing and missing their lunch today to, to, to join us. Um, you can find further details about the Judge Business School on our website, Twitter, and other social media. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you can join us next time. Mm-hmm.